you'd like to follow along in your Bible, our scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. invite you to pray with me, Lord God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable in your sight. You are truly our blessed rock and our redeemer. Amen. In your Old Testament, there are back-to-back books called Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is focused on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, a little bit of history in about the year 590 B.C., uh, Babylonian army swept through what is today Israel, destroyed the remnants of the Jewish army, marched into the city, flattened it to the ground, destroyed the temple, burned the walls that surrounded the city, and either killed or marched off into slavery what was called the Great Exile, all of the surviving Jewish people. And they remained in exile for about 50 years until the Persians overswept the Babylonians and had an enlightened king, a fellow by the name of Cyrus, who issued a famous decree that the Jewish people could go back and settle in Jerusalem again, and many of them did just that. So around the year five, uh, 430, excuse me, there's this man named Nehemiah who is working for the current Persian king, a guy named Xerxes, and Nehemiah is very happy with his job and living very well, and one day he hears a report from somebody who has just gone to Jerusalem and come back again to Susa, which was the capital city of the Persian Empire. And what this man reported is that although there were many Jewish people living in Jerusalem, and although many of the houses had been rebuilt, they had not rebuilt the walls that surrounded Jerusalem and protected it from invading armies. And Nehemiah was greatly distressed by this. And so he went to the Lord in prayer, and he prayed a prayer something like this. Dear Lord, you know how much we need to have these walls rebuilt. Please send somebody back to Jerusalem to lead in the rebuilding of these walls. Now, there's a very important life lesson here. If you ever pray to God and say, God, I know you're aware of this situation. You need to send someone to do something about it. Unless you're prepared to be that person, don't pray a prayer like that. Right? Because no sooner had Nehemiah hung up his prayer phone to God, than God said, pack your bags, Nehemiah. You're the one I've picked to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah goes to the Persian king Xerxes, and with all of his persuasive powers and an abundance of wine, convinces the Persian king to send him back to Jerusalem 
to rebuild the walls. He arrives in Jerusalem. It's nighttime. He kind of surveys the, 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 the city itself. And the next morning he calls all of the people together. It's a wonderful story. You can find it in the, in the book of Nehemiah. And he says, I have been sent by God to tell you two important things. Number one, the walls have to be rebuilt. And number two, you're going to rebuild them. Now, this is an enormous task to rebuild these city walls. In 2009, an archaeologist, back when you could still do this sort of thing, uh, named Eliat Mazar, uh, actually did some excavating work around these walls. She found a portion of Nehemiah's wall and discovered that it was between 7 and 11 feet thick, 12 feet high, and circled the city. That's miles of wall that has to be rebuilt all without the advantage of caterpillar equipment, right? You're doing this by hand. Furthermore, the Palestinian people who lived in Jerusalem then and who live in Jerusalem now were opposed to the rebuilding of the wall. In fact, they threatened to kill anyone who was caught trying to rebuild the wall, which meant that Nehemiah had to post armed sentries around the construction project and quickly finish the construction project before... It could be sabotaged. In fact, they finished rebuilding the walls in 52 days. Now, you can imagine if you're a part of the crowd that heard Nehemiah speak, you recognize that the walls needed to be rebuilt, but you said to yourself, how can we, few as we are, possibly rebuild these walls in such a perilous time as this? Nehemiah had a brilliant solution to this. You've heard about the parable about how you eat the elephant, right? One bite at a time. He, he divided up the wall into sections. Usually dividing it up according to gates. You know, you've got the section from the sheep gate to the fountain gate, from the fountain gate to the large gate. And he gave each family in Jerusalem one section of the wall that they were to rebuild. He did a lot of matching work on this, matching up what he knew to be the gifts of the family with what that wall section needed to be like. And he told them, only focus on your section of this wall. Another family will focus on another section. Now, when you read this story in, in, in Nehemiah, there are two wonderful names that stand out in the assignments. One is Eliashab. Eliashab was the high priest at the time. And no doubt after Nehemiah had given the assignment to Eliashab and his family of what section of the wall was to be rebuilt, Eliashab pulled Nehemiah aside and said, hey, by the way, I'm the high priest. We don't have to do any manual labor. And Nehemiah said, you will work with everyone else. No one is more than or less than, right, in this community. The other is a fellow named Malchijah. We don't know anything about Malchijah except uh, his family section of the wall was around the dung gate. If you have to ask what a dung gate is, I'm not going to tell you, but it's basically the gate that you carry the dung and the refuge out at night. Imagine if that was your assignment. Imagine if we were building a building and you got to name the urinal after your family in, in the building, right? That would, be the, that would be the similar type of arrangement that's set up for Malchijah and his family. It's a little commemorative plaque in honor of Malchijah. This dung gate is designated, right? Love that story. Everybody had their section of the wall to rebuild, and the wall was built. Fast forward to about the year 50 AD, and Paul tells the Corinthian community a similar mission. Your task 
is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people of Corinth. It's an audacious task. There's opposition to this then, just as there was to Nehemiah and the Jewish people. In this case, it's the Romans who are opposed to the sharing of the gospel. These people don't have a building to operate out of. Sound familiar? They don't have many ministry staff. Their ministers constantly gone on the road. They must have looked at Paul as if he was crazy. How can we possibly do this thing that you've asked us to do? And Paul tells them, because I'm giving you a superpower the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, you will be able to accomplish this mission. God will send you every gift you need to fulfill this mission. The Holy Spirit. Now, I was trying to think of, of, of how to, uh, to, to share or illustrate this and, and I thought about the fact that it's, it's spring training, right? And, and your favorite baseball team, right, is undefeated at this point, right? You've got World Series hopes, whether you're a Cub fan or a Cardinal fan or a Sox fan. Right now, everything, everything is coming up roses. And, and if you're a Cub fan, you're excited because you've got a new manager, right? Craig Council, can I get an amen, Cub fans, to that, right? That's pretty exciting. And... and, and what I know about baseball, what I know about a manager is, at this point in spring training, what a manager is doing is, is looking at all of the players that report to camp and making decisions. And you're making decisions based on their gifts, right? And how those gifts will work with the other players on the team. And, and by and large, the, the, the work that you're doing isn't focused on the superstars because you already kind of know what their role on the team is. What you're really focused on are the players on the bench and the pitchers in the bullpen, right? And, and you know you've only got a, a limited amount of players that you can bring with you. I think it's 26 these days. So you've got 26 players that you can bring with you. And you've got to make some tough decisions about how many left-handed long relievers you have who can back up at third base and shortstop, right? And so a good manager learns the players that are on his bench and what their gifts are and how they work together. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit looks down upon a faith community like the bridge, and the Holy Spirit says, these are the gifts that the bridge needs to be able to do the mission that's been given to it and accomplish it. This is what Paul's telling the Corinthian people. The Holy Spirit looks down upon you and says, these are the gifts that are needed to fulfill your mission. The Holy Spirit will not only give you the gifts that you need, but also will manage you in the use of these gifts so that you are using them cooperatively. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now, to each of you, a power of the Holy Spirit has been given. So think about the bridge, right? We're kind of like that Corinthian church. We, we have no building. We have a limited staff. You have a pastor who's not always there, right? Maybe mentally not always there, right? And, and, and we have this audacious mission. How do we accomplish it? By believing that the Holy Spirit will give us every gift we need to fulfill that mission. Now, the Holy Spirit knows the gifts that we need. It knows that we need a certain amount of preaching gifts, a certain amount of teaching gifts, a certain amount of healing gifts, a certain amount of administrative gifts. We, we, we will receive the gifts that we need to fulfill the mission. The Spirit will dispense or give those gifts out. The word for gift 
in the New Testament is charisma. Charisma means a free thing. These gifts are freely given to us. We have to believe that we have received these gifts and employ them together, which is what Paul is telling the Corinthian church to do. Now, none of these gifts are ranked. There aren't gifts that are more important than any other gift. The gift of preaching is not more important than the gift of helping. The gift of healing is not more important than the gift of being able to speak an angelic language. All of the gifts are the same. All of the gifts are dispensed by the Spirit. They do not belong to us. They belong to God. But we are given these gifts. Here's Paul again reminding us, each one of us, a power of the Holy Spirit has been given. So I want us to think for a minute about what we're charged to do here at the bridge, right? Many, many churches, uh, their, their primary focus is on their building, right? Maintaining their building, the ministries that happen in their building, this becomes the focus of the church. Sometimes it becomes the focus of the church that they lose sight of the mission outside of that church. Thankfully, we're not going to do that because we don't have a building to focus on. We're going to focus on the ministries that are happening outside us, right? Now, we understand that this is our mission, and to fulfill this big, audacious mission, we're going to need the Holy Spirit and a lot of those gifts. Here's our mission. Say, say, this, say this with me. I think it's on the screen behind me, right? You ready? We are a community of believers centered on Jesus, affirming and welcoming to all, committed to dialogue and questioning, focused on service to others, and driven by love. For us to live out that vision, to make it something that we do, we're going to have to trust that the Holy Spirit is with us. Not only trust that the Holy Spirit is with us, but trust that the Spirit has given us the gifts that we need to fulfill that mission. And the Spirit has. Those gifts are here in this room and, and in your living rooms or in your cars, wherever you're, you're with us in service this morning. That's where those gifts have been dispensed. It's the Spirit's job to get us to work together and to get us to utilize those gifts for the sake of the community. One more verse from 1 Corinthians. This is 12, 27 through 30. To each of us, right? To each of us has been given by the Spirit gifts of healing, teaching, administrating, speaking the truth, mentoring, and serving others. One of the questions I always get asked uh, at this point is, well, how do I know what spiritual gifts I have? And, and, and one way to know is, is to pray. Another way to know is to ask somebody close to you, hey, what spiritual gifts do you think I have? Another way is to take a spiritual gifts inventory. If you're part of the small groups, uh, uh, a link went out for a great inventory you can take. It's on the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church that will help you identify those spiritual gifts. I want to say one more word about that before we move on from that. Remember that a spiritual gift is different from a natural gift. Some of us have natural gifts. We can naturally draw a picture or paint. We can naturally play a musical instrument. We can naturally dribble a basketball or dance a pirouette, right? Those are natural gifts. They belong to us. Spiritual gifts are not natural. We didn't get them at birth. We get them when the Spirit decides the church needs those gifts. You could, you could have a spiritual gift 10 years ago and no longer have it because the Spirit would say it's no longer needed 
for the church at this time, or you may have a different spiritual gift than you had 10 years ago. It's always good to update these spiritual gift inventories from time to time. What's important is to believe that you have a spiritual gift and that the church needs to employ it for the sake of our mission. Now, your leaders at the bridge have been thinking a lot about how we deploy these gifts, how we use these gifts. And, and, and as part of this, uh, we tried a little experiment. If you were with us in Advent, we, we did a little experiment where we, we, we talked about the, the issue of homelessness in the community and especially among some of the youth in the community. A lot of people, even in, in Washington, that are struggling with housing issues and clearly in the greater Peoria area this is an issue. And, and we kind of identified a threefold uh, approach to this. The first was we needed to know more about this. We need Jesus to inspire us to want to know more about it. We need to bring in experts to teach us about the problem. Then we need to proclaim this to the community. This is something that Jesus wants us to be talking about and thinking about and investing in. And there needs to be some sort of an act of compassion or service tied with this. And it worked fairly well at Advent. And so we talked about, let's continue to do this as a congregation going forward. And as, as we did this, uh, we came up with this idea of a spotlight, right? A spotlight shines a light on something. And, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And my friend Trevor Bartolomucci, who's also your lay leader, is going to come up and, and, and help us to understand this idea of a spotlight. Trevor? I'm, I'm glad Tom messed up earlier in the service, so it makes me feel better if I mess <laughs> something up. It'll happen again. It'll happen again. We try to do that at least once a Sunday just to keep it going. Um, when we were doing this discussion about this spotlight, we didn't know what we were going to call it, but we were trying to figure out what makes the bridge stand out. Why would somebody want to be a part of this faith community? And so thought about it. I didn't have anything off the top of my head. And so I want you to think about that for a second. I'm going to run a commercial while we do that in a second. This is a Super Bowl commercial um, that maybe you saw, maybe you didn't, but take a, take a look at this commercial. Maybe you thought the commercial would have been the um, Jesus Gets Us campaign. If you watched that Super Bowl commercial, $7 million, um, it showed Jesus um, washing people's feet. Um, and I was reading comments about it, and, and what I, one thing that kind of stuck out was people said Jesus doesn't have a PR problem. 
The church has a PR problem. The church doesn't do what Jesus does. So I thought it was really cool that this is a, uh, a commercial from the Jewish perspective uh, of ending hate. I think the bridge is a group of people who aren't afraid to get paint on their shoes. We are going to shine lights on issues that are hard. Part of our mission statement is asking questions, having discussions, because the world outside of our building, whatever that is, needs to know Jesus' love. And so as I was thinking about how we can do that, we, we, we wanted to talk about issues that impacted all of us. Um, ten years ago, I, I was at a conference, and it, it changed my life. And what happened was this person asked a simple question. What breaks your heart? And what are you doing about it? I thought I was doing okay. I, 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 I was working with youth at the time. I was helping youth figure out who Jesus was, how to figure out their life. I, uh, our family, I, last week I just got a letter um, from Compassion International. We were a Compassion family for 20 years. We adopted somebody from Kenya um, for 15 years. She graduated out. Now we have somebody, um, Jeptu. I'm doing all these things in my life that I thought was enough. But it, it didn't break my heart. A confirmation class that year, we went to the, the children's home in Champaign-Urbana. And we walked around and lived the day in the life of someone in the children's home who had been abused, neglected. Uh, maybe their parents had died. Maybe their parents were in jail. And you live the day in their life. That broke my heart. And so um, my wife, Audrey's amazing. And so whenever I come up to her, we got to talk. She's like, oh, great. Something is going to happen. Because I've always had this philosophy that I got when I was in college. I read a book by Viktor Frankl. Uh, he was a Holocaust survivor, psychologist, who tried to figure out what is the meaning of life after surviving the Holocaust? And so one of the things that stuck in my brain for my last 20 years of my life was the idea that he wrote in this book was, when you know something, it is your moral obligation to do something about it. We all make choices to answer that call. The church does. We as families, individuals, usually the choice is I'm going to put my head in the sand and pretend nothing happened. Um, in my pocket right now is an iPhone. I know where iPhones come from, right? I know who makes them. I know what happens in China. But I still use my iPhone because it's convenient. It has everything I need. When you reach out and do something that is bigger than you, you have to sacrifice. Our goal at the bridge is to find ways to connect with people through love and compassion, not on the easy subjects, but the hard subjects. The things that challenge us that most people, most churches, most 
organizations close their eyes or pretend that it'll just get fixed. I want to be in a church that has their eyes open, who ask questions, who have discussions, and that's what we're going to do. We don't know if we're going to fix any of these problems, but we're going to try. But it takes every one of us to decide, are we going to keep our heads in the sand? We're going to pretend that the world is going to just fix itself, or do we find ways to fix it in our community? And so that's a Methodist tradition, my friend Sally. You know that. The, the women in the Methodist church have been doing this for decades, building churches. We live in a town that has Methodist Hospital that was created by Methodists to heal the sick. There's schools that were built because the church thought they need education. The children's homes were built to love orphans and neglected and abused kids. And so as we put all these spotlight things together, I want to have you ask yourself, what breaks your heart? What are you doing about it? What breaks this community's heart? What are we doing about it? What breaks God's heart? And what are we doing about it? And so we're going to we're going to try. We're going to do a bunch of things. We're going to learn. We're going to we're going to get people to teach us what it looks like to help people. We're going to try it ourselves. We might stumble. We might be successful, but we're going to love our community because that's what God has challenged us to do. Um, Curtis Brown came up a couple weeks ago and talked about our barn and having the doors open for people to come in to the bridge. Well, the barn works both ways. If you try to keep an animal inside a barn that doesn't have a, uh, a door, they're just going to go out into the pasture. We're challenged to go out to the pasture and love our neighbors, to figure out how that works. It takes a risk. It takes boldness. It takes the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to challenge you again. What is breaking your heart? And what are you doing about it? Thank you.